This podcast is brought to you by Talbot County, Maryland, the birthplace of Frederick Douglass. Visit frederickdouglassbirthplace.org to begin your journey into his life. Driving tours, history, and Douglass in his own words at frederickdouglassbirthplace.org. Hi, this is Carlisle Hashem, and this is Carlisle's Chesapeake. Today, we have with us Professor Dale Glenwood Green. Hi, Dale. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. Good. Thank you for being here. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Dale, uh, you're the professor of architecture at Morgan State University. You've been there since 2008. Uh, You are um, from Easton, Maryland, and you are a descendant of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. Could you tell us, please, about uh, your ancestors? Yes. So I'm a relative uh, to both Frederick Douglass and also to Harriet Tubman. Uh, I descend from the Reverend Samuel Green Sr. and uh, the Bishop Alexander Wayman. Uh, And so on my mother's side of the family is the ancestry tied to Frederick Douglass, by way of Bishop Alexander Wayman. So Frederick Douglass, who was born as Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, uh, was a member of obviously the Bailey family, which married into my mother's side of the family, the Waymans, in the early 1800s. And so through a marriage uh, in the early 1800s, I'm a relative as a result of the Frederick Douglass family. So he would be a cousin uh, to me, and on the Harriet Tubman side, uh, equally a relative. Uh, Harriet Tubman had no children, so no one descends from her, but she has many relatives. And so, uh, through Reverend Samuel Green Sr., who is my sixth great grandfather, and again on my father's side of the family, uh, Harriet Tubman was born Harriet Ross. And she married John Tubman, and that's where the Tubman name came in. But the Green connection is through her mother, who was Harriet Ritt Green, who married a Ben Ross. And so when you hear Harriet talk about her grandmother, who was Modesty Green, it is actually through Modesty Green that we actually descend. And so Reverend Samuel Green Sr., uh, comes out of that line, and thus uh, I come out of that line. And so she is uh, a relative and also a cousin in that vein as well. That's very exciting. Um, could you please tell us about your work on the Hill in Easton? Absolutely. So my work on the Hill uh, began in 2010. Uh, And the Hill community is a early free black community located in downtown Easton, Maryland, on the eastern shore of Maryland. And in particular, I came to that work by an invitation, in a sense. Uh, I had began documenting early African-American churches on Maryland's eastern shore Mm -hmm. when I first joined the faculty at Morgan State University. And so I was leading a nine-county Uh, documentation team uh, to uh, document in historic black and white photography, measured drawings and written histories of the historic black churches. And black churches have a very important role in the history of African-Americans in the country. And so in the process of doing that, obviously there were several in Talbot County, And in the year of uh, 2010, Preservation Maryland held a very important conference at Tidewater Inn in Easton. And I was invited to speak at that conference on the work uh, that I had been doing in regards to historic African-American churches. And I had a session called The Uncanny Loss of the Historic African-American Churches of Maryland's Eastern Shore. And it drew a lot of attention, and a lot of the black churches of the Eastern Shore came to that session. And at that session were members from both Asbury's Church on the Hill and Bethel Church on the Hill. And I hadn't gotten to their churches yet, but they knew I was documenting black churches. And so they were sitting on the front row of the uh, session that day. 
And afterwards, they came to me and they said, we want you to not only document our churches, because I want to underscore that my work coming to the Hill was a bit serendipitous. They said, we want you to research the Hill. And I had never heard of the Hill before, having been a native of the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh, Coincidentally, no one had ever really mentioned the word the Hill to me. Um, not my parents, not my grandparents, and et cetera. And, and did I learn later how connected all of our families were to it? Uh, but that's the importance of really telling our stories. But I agreed to not only document their churches, but also to look into the Hill community, uh, namely because the Bethel AME Church uh, that is located uh, within the Hill community was founded in 1818, mm-hmm. which is the same year that Frederick Douglass was born. Uh, in Talbot County. And I knew that there had to be something significant about that community if, in fact, the church was being started in 1818. The community had to have predated that church. And so that was my initiation. And it came by way of Historic Easton Incorporated, coupled with members of both Asbury and Bethel Church, uh, who invited me in. Uh, to begin to to document it. And coming in first as an architect, obviously, you know, it was very linear to look at the buildings. But as I started, as I said, as starting to look at the real historiography, the history of the history, it was clear that we needed to assemble a team that was transdisciplinary and one that could uncover what I believed were the uh, six core facets, in a sense, of uncovering the Hill community. And so it became very clear that there were several families that had lived in this community by way of the first U.S. federal census of 1790. And so I wanted to engage a genealogist who could assemble a team Mm. of genealogists to look at the genealogical significance of the Hill. It was very important to me that there were still elders living in this community, many of which who were born on the very parcels of land that had been in their same family for more than 200 years. Mm. And so knowing the African tradition of oral history, I knew that it was important for us to conduct oral interviews and to have oral historians that would be a part of this process. And then looking at the historiography, the history of the history, you know, knowing that Talbot County's courthouse was among the earliest in the country. It was one of the um, only remaining sort of uh, surviving of early courthouses that still had a lot of its original records. You know, in many towns, you could only go back but so far because the courthouse flooded. The courthouse caught on fire. And in the case of Talbot County... It has records going back to the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. And so with all of these great records like manumission papers and land records, it was important to have both a a historian but also a land record researcher because the land records not only told us about the properties, but remember African-Americans were considered property. And so in the land records, we could extract the stories of the individuals. And so that was an important part. And then the things that we couldn't see above ground were important to us. And so I had good colleagues over at the University of Maryland at College Park who were archaeologists and have been doing work in Annapolis uh, since 1981 and doing work at the Y House. And so I invited uh, Dr. Mark Leone uh, of the University of Maryland at College Park to join and assemble the team of archaeologists. So we used all of those uh, legs of the stool, in a sense, uh, to uh, situate, if you will, the context of the Hill community, which has given us to date a very uh, rich narrative of a early free black community uh, started right in the downtown section of Eastern Maryland. Well, there are two things that I'd like you to talk about, Dale, um, about the Hill. And just to tell our listeners that if you were to go to Easton, and we hope that you do, yes, you don't see a hill. You know what I mean? Yes. But because the eastern shore is flat, um, and I mean there might be a a little rise, but yes. And you, I can speak to that. It's you know the hill. Um, 
Name is very interesting. There are two things that uh, we believe are important about the name of the hill, because certainly when you go to Easton or if you go to the eastern shore in general, uh, the topography is such that the shore is relatively flat. Uh, but certainly in the case of Easton and in Talbot County, um, it is flat. There is no hill proper uh, that you would see physically. However, uh, in the time of the um, founding of the hill community, the uh, entry to the town of Easton would have been by way of the port. Mm. And the port in Easton is uh, named Easton Point. And it is situated at the sort of lower end of the town. And so the topography from the port mm -hmm. up to the town of Easton is an incline. Mm -hmm. And there is, in essence, a hill. Now, we're, you know, in a different century, but in that earlier time, there would have been a bit of a hill uh, that one would have, you know, navigated, nothing mountainous, if you will, but uh, certainly you would have come from what they referred to as the bottom up to the hill. The other aspect about the name to the hill is religious and is symbolic as far as uh, how the Bible records a city on a hill shall not be hid. Mm -hmm. And certainly the hill community was born out of uh, faith and uh, people of the faith and the church uh, and the black church community in particular. And perhaps the name of the hill was given as a result of that uh, African uh, Methodist uh, tradition that was so rooted in this community that had two African-American churches within it. Okay, so thank you for that picture. <laughs> um, <laughs> Two things that I'd like you to talk about. One is the uh, story of Grace Brooks, and two is the the wheel or several wheels that were found in the anthropological digs done by Dr. Mark Leone's team. Yes. So Grace Brooks um, was born in Talbot County in 1740, and she was an enslaved woman, African-American woman, she had children and grandchildren. She was considered a midwife in the slave community and then later in the free community. She was enslaved just outside of Easton, uh, Maryland, and uh, she purchased her freedom in 1788. It is believed that she was able to earn money uh, through being a midwife while enslaved. Um, and as a result, she purchased her freedom along with her children and her grandchildren. She was a single woman raising these children and grandchildren. And she relocated uh, from the outskirts of Easton, Maryland, uh, to uh, the downtown area of Easton, again, on the Hill community. And she was the first a uh, woman and African-American to purchase property. Mm -hmm. And she purchased a half-acre lot with a house on it that was built two years prior. And uh, this was in 1792 when she bought the home on the half-acre lot. And she had her family in this home along with, uh, you know, uh, an estate. You know, when she died, she had a will. Uh, she had an executor. Uh, the inventory records what was in her home. She was of means. Uh, she was a woman who, when she died, had a full obituary. And I have to repeat that she was a woman, regardless of her color. A lot of women, when she died in 1810, didn't have an obituary. You know, men had obituaries. Uh, but she had a full obituary, and it indicates that, obviously, men thought highly of her because they published and wrote her obituary. And in it, she's likened to her peers, which predate Frederick Douglass, predate Harriet Tubman. So in her obituary, because it's 1810, Frederick Douglass hasn't been born. Harriet Tubman hasn't been born. So in it, they reference her to Benjamin Banneker, hmm. who was born in the 1700s when wow. she was. They referenced her to Phyllis Wheatley, 
who was the first black woman to publish a poem uh, who was born in the 1700s. And then they say that she was of industry and she was a woman of economy and that uh, Easton has uh, lost, you know, a real jewel. And they go on and on about her. They even reference her skin color in the most eloquent and respectful way. They say, quote, although of sable hue, Mm. they never referred to her as a Negro or colored or black, of course, in those terms and what have you. But they referred to her of sable hue, letting you know that she was, in fact, of African descent. Uh, But uh, we have coined her as Amazing Grace uh, because her story is such an amazing story in the Hill community. Uh, She was a midwife not only to the black community, but to the white community. And we believe that this is how she ended up with such an eloquent uh, obituary, which was, as I say, uh, largely written by white men of the town who were obviously, you know, of means. Uh, So she was a very important individual. She was a precursor uh, to the early uh, African-American church on the hill which later became Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1818. But again, she died in 1810, and her obituary references that she was a member of the Bethel Society. Mm. And so, again, it goes back to underscoring how the faith and the role of the black churches are so important, and they often predate the very structures that we begin to see later. Uh, And so Amazing Grace... Uh, is a name that we forever have attached to her and her legacy. Uh, but she was known as Grace Brooks, and she was also known uh, based on the land records uh, within the town of Easton as, the again, men used her as a datum, a reference point, even in the land records, because it was so unique that this woman owned property, that they would uh, reference things like, five or six from Granny Grace's house and things like that. And so she had a remarkable story and life and legacy. And it's one that uh, we were able to uncover as part of the Hill Community Project. And that house is still standing there, isn't it? That house is uh, one that exists in the town of Easton. Yeah. The historic Easton gives tours of the Hill. Yes. And I've been able to lead many, many tours through the Hill Community. Yeah. I've been on one. It was great. (laughs) Um, Dale? Uh, we want to, oh, we want to talk about the wheel. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, you know, the wheel equally is a very uh, significant symbol of the African and African-American religion in the country uh, that is tied to West African uh, traditions. Uh, often uh, the wheel, uh, often referred to as uh, the bundle Uh, which were both found at the Y House uh, and also on the Hill community, uh, are important symbols uh, that connect back to, again, the biblical references, uh, and in particular with the wheel, uh, the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, who saw the wheel in the middle of the wheel, way up in the middle of the air, uh, is a very important uh, association to the religious experience. Um, Others have heard of this uh, through the Negro spirituals, uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which also is a connection to the wheel, uh, that, uh, you know, the chariot would swing low and carry them home. And so this was a very important uh, find, uh, not only at the plantation where enslaved members were located, but to also find it in the free black community where free persons of color were able to express freely uh, their connections not only to Africa, but also to uh, Christianity and to uh, religious freedom. And so uh, this was an important artifact uh, attesting again to the significance of the Hill community being founded on uh, faith and also its connections to Africa. Frederick Douglass was among the most famous Americans of his day, an internationally renowned author, orator, and statesman whose words and deeds helped shape the modern United States. 
His journey began in Talbot County, Maryland, which honors his legacy with the Frederick Douglass Park on the Tuckahoe. Other locations throughout Talbot County commemorate his birth, childhood, and return trips as an adult, during which he was hailed as a hero. Visit frederickdouglasbirthplace.org to begin your exploration of his life. You'll find free historical information and the full texts of all three of his autobiographies. Driving tours through small towns and the countryside help you follow in the footsteps of one of the most significant figures of the 19th century. Douglas once said, What is possible for me is possible for you. To celebrate that possibility, plan a trip to scenic Talbot County, Maryland, which welcomes travelers to experience more than 600 miles of coastline. Go to frederickdouglasbirthplace.org. Frederick Douglass leaves the Eastern Shore and goes to Baltimore twice. And if we could talk about the second time when he goes, that's when he meets Anna, his future wife. Yes. Yes. So, you know, Frederick Douglass, um, often we've referred to his narrative as it relates to the black church, the black experience, uh, Christianity. And uh, once I had the opportunity to speak in St. Michael's about Frederick Douglass, and I uplifted a a text from the Bible uh, that referenced being blessed in the city and being blessed in the field. Mm -hmm. And it speaks uniquely to the life and legacy of Frederick Douglass as well, because often we talk about him with his roots on the shore. But as you've mentioned, take us to the city, in Baltimore in particular, where while enslaved, he was still blessed. And in this case, he was blessed to meet his future wife, uh, who was a free woman of color, uh, born uh, in Caroline County on the Tuckahoe, on the other side of the Tuckahoe, where Frederick Douglass would have been born, and born on the property adjacent to uh, my mother's side of the family, the Wayman family. In fact, uh, Anna Murray, as she was born, uh, was an extended member of our Wayman family. Uh, in our family records, uh, my eighth great-grandmother, uh, Matilda Wayman, the mother of the bishop, uh, would record that Anna Murray would look after three wagon loads of Wayman children when the families went to the camp meeting. And, uh, of course, Anna Murray, her parents went to the camp meeting. Uh, my eighth great-grandparents were at the camp meeting and so forth. But nevertheless, Anna Murray had uh, later... Uh, went to uh, Baltimore as a free person. Frederick Douglass was going to Baltimore as an enslaved person. They meet in Baltimore, and Baltimore was a unique and important place to African Americans. There were free people alongside uh, enslaved members in a very densely populated uh, city. Uh, There was a very strong um, religious institution in Baltimore going back to Uh, the 1700s, when the 1787 Colored Methodist Society had been started. And uh, that's important because the institutions in which both Frederick Douglass and Anna Mary shared uh, associations with were born out of that 1787 Colored Methodist Society. Uh, One was the uh, Sharp Street Methodist Episcopal Church, where Douglass was a member when he was in Baltimore. Uh, another was Strawberry Alley Methodist Church, where both he and Anna had uh, affiliations and Fells Point. And then, of course, there was the strong African-American caulkers and uh, those that worked in Fells Point on the port. And uh, certainly Douglas was among that number uh, of individuals that uh, worked uh, as a caulker there. And Anna, uh, being a, a seamstress, and working in the city um, and being a free person of color and being a person who grew up on the Underground Railroad. Her parents and, again, the Wayman family and others along the Tuckahoe were very much involved in the Underground Railroad experience, and she herself uh, was an Underground Railroad um, conductor. And so with Douglas being enslaved and with them meeting and falling in love and she really was, you know, the individual that, uh, you know, fostered uh, his uh, his fight for freedom in many ways. You know, Douglas had certainly uh, quoted that, um, you know, the African proverb says, when you pray, move with your feet. 
And Frederick Douglass said when he escaped in 1838 that he prayed with his legs Mm -hmm. and he took action. And it's really Anna Murray who, you know, fostered that action for him to escape because she did not want to marry a slave. She did not want her children to be enslaved. She did not want that for her or Frederick or for a life uh, that they would create together. And so she... uh, uh, fashioned it such that he would be able to dress in sailor's clothes. And, of course, from Baltimore is where he made his escape. And, uh, you know, he really has uh, become the Frederick Douglass uh, that we know as a result of that meeting with Anna Murray, as well as his escape. And so Baltimore plays a very important, you know, role in that narrative in Anna Murray plays a very, very important role in the shaping of a Frederick Douglass because he was Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. And it is Anna Murray in many ways who creates and helps shape a Frederick Douglass. He took up that name as a result of escaping and getting married. And so she becomes Anna Murray Douglass. So we have to really, it's good you bring that up, you know, because it's important to understand where a Frederick Douglass actually emerges. And in many ways, it comes out of that experience from Baltimore. And then Frederick Douglass comes back in 1878 to reconsecrate the two churches on the hill, the Asbury Methodist and the Bethel AME Church. Do you want to talk about that, please? I do. And I want to just um, top off the Baltimore piece with the black churches in Douglass because To your point, um, it's important to understand that when Maryland signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1864, Douglas returned back to Baltimore and he returned to speak at five African-American churches. And so when he comes to the Hill in 1878, after that, he comes to speak at two African-American churches. And so it's really important to understand that these black churches were essential to Douglas's life and his legacy and his experience. And in many ways and in many of his opportunities, uh, it was the very platform that he had um, to use uh, to exercise his oratorical skills, uh, to push his agenda through the use of his pen, and to promote, of course, the importance of the vote. But in the case of 1878 and Frederick Douglass's return to Easton, Uh, where he came to the Hill community, his 1878 visit was a significant visit, quite extraordinary. He came in through the port of Easton, again, Easton Point, and he came in on a steam liner, and he was one of the first blacks to come in on the steam liner Mm -hmm. because we forget that the steam liners were segregated, you know, Mm -hmm. and so here he is, tall, African-American, top hat, you know, the whole nine yards, and he was... um, you know, uh, well-received coming into the town of Easton. Port Street was well-lined of those that were welcoming him uh, into the town of Easton. And he travels up, again, up Port Street uh, to the Hill community. And he passes by, of course, uh, where the Moton uh, School, a black school, was located on the uh, Port Street location. There was an earlier school there that predated Uh, the Moton Rosenwald School. And uh, he then made his way to uh, the Hill community where he not only addressed uh, the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, but he dedicated their newly, relatively newly constructed brick church. They prior, both churches prior had two wood frame structures. And in 1877, Bethel AME Church built its brick structure in 1876. Asbury Methodist Episcopal Church built its brick structure. And in 1878, Douglas comes to dedicate both of them as they are newly completed. And so he spoke at both churches. He didn't speak at just one, and it was the same day. So it was in November of 1878. So he was at Bethel, spoke, dedicated it walked around the corner in the Hill community over to the Asbury Church, spoke there, dedicated that structure. And then he went to the courthouse and he was the first African-American to speak at the courthouse. So this 1878 visit in many ways was the first of everything, 
first on the steam liner, first to dedicate these two newly constructed churches, first to speak at the uh, courthouse on the lawn, uh, um, rather at the Tulsa County Courthouse, where now a statue has been erected uh, on the lawn there as a result, in many ways, of this very significant visit that he had November 1878. So I think, you know, while he had visits uh, returning back to the shore, uh, certainly, this 1878 visit was quite a significant visit uh, to Easton, where he had once been jailed at the, uh, you know, jail uh, in close proximity to the courthouse. Dale, could you please talk about the history of free blacks on the Hill? Sure. I mean, what's unique to the Hill is the free black narrative. It's very important to break, to unpack uh, the different facets in terms of how they became free. And uh, because there's about five different variations of a free person of color. Mm. And they all existed in the case of the Hill. Mm. And it's what gave the Hill the kind of uh, significance that it had in in terms of how it thrived amidst a climate and a context that had slaves. I mean, think about it. On one end, there was Harriet Tubman leading people to freedom. And on another end, you had Frederick Douglass, who was walked into bondage and ultimately was escaping to freedom and juxtaposed these two iconic, globally recognized narratives of enslaved people was this abounding free black community. You know, I mean, that is a huge nugget in a sense, you know, in the overall grand scheme of the Hill community. And so how they became free, how they thrived as the free persons, because that's another piece. You know, you could be free. Think about the, the movie that um, portrayed the life of um, uh, it was 12 Years of Slave, uh, Solomon Northrop. He was a free person of color. And he became a, a person who spent 12 years as a slave, because as a free person, he was snatched off the street and sold into slavery down to New Orleans, you see. And so we have to understand how tumultuous it could be to be a free person of color during a time when slavery is legal. In the case of uh, the free black community, you know, um, in the case of Easton, Maryland, there was only one incident that we were able to uncover that would have been perceived as a negative experience around this. And that is um, Ned Brooks, who was not affiliated with Grace Brooks. Mm, And uh, it's important to clarify that because one of the important books, which we do recommend, and it was uh, Jennifer Dorsey's book, Uh, called Hirelings. But I wanted to correct that because in her book, uh, she references that Ned Brooks was the husband of Grace Brooks. And unfortunately, that that was um, that was an error. Uh, And we understand how that happened. They actually lived on the same street, Mm. but she was single and head of her household. And I've kind of recounted Grace Brooks's history. But nevertheless, Ned Brooks was actually married to Daphne Brooks, And Daphne Brooks was a free woman of color. Ned Brooks was enslaved. And Daphne, his wife, hired herself out to purchase her husband's freedom. Mm, mm, mm. And that's how he got free. Mm. The negative and the horror behind that was that when she bought his freedom and he came and lived on the hill as a free person of color, we found a record that resulted in his death by way of lynching when he, as a free person of color, traveled to Anne Arundel County. Oh, my gosh. Leaving the safety of the Hill community. And they did not lynch him in Anne Arundel County. They sent him back to Easton to be lynched on the courthouse lawn. Oh, my gosh. In Easton, yeah. And that's one of the only negative incidents that we've uncovered attached to the Hill community. But I wanted to really underscore this free black component. It's important to understand that when persons ask, how did we get these free people of color on the Hill community? 
there were a number of ways that people became free on the Hill. Uh, In the case of Grace Brooks, as I mentioned, she purchased her freedom. So there were those that bought their freedom. They hired themselves out, which was an incredible and uh, unique, in many ways, uh, transaction, because it's unfortunate to look at it as a transaction, but it was. And I think it's worth understanding that these transactions weren't always successful. Mm. Uh, In the case of my paternal history, uh, Reverend Samuel Green Sr. was born enslaved in 1802, and he was able to purchase his freedom in 1834. He bought his wife's freedom, but then when he went to buy his son's freedom, the master would not sell him his son. He went to buy his daughter's freedom. The master would not sell him his daughter. Mm, mm, So mm. he could buy himself. He could buy his wife, but they refused to sell him his son and his daughter. And it's also important to understand that even in the case of my family, there were four different masters. And so when we start to talk about how people become free, it isn't just I'm going to one person and I'm going to buy my family. You were dealing in the case of my family with four different individuals, two of which agreed. The other two did not. Mm, mm, mm. And so when we're looking at a whole community, Mm. we have to understand how complex that is. Mm -hmm. Because today we would just think, oh, one person owned the whole family and they could just and just to purchase yourself is significant. But to be able to purchase multiple members or to have the cooperation of a uh, a owner in the transaction was no small feat. And so when we look at those different transactions, in a sense, throughout the Hill, that's quite significant. You then have as a result of people being free, being able to have children and they be free born members of the community. And so in the Hill community, there are people who are born free, which is very different. So purchase freedom and you're free, born free and you're free. Then we have individuals who are manumitted, emancipated, freed, and they are freed on several different bases. They're freed based on a tenure of work that they've completed They're freed as a result of the death of someone. They're freed as a result of a shift in the economy. Because on the Eastern Shore, when they transitioned from tobacco to grain, many enslaved persons were manumitted and became free people of color. They were freed as a result of religious convictions. The Quaker community, which in the case of Easton and the Hill community, the Third Haven Meeting House of 1684, In the 1740s, the Quakers started entertaining, being abolitionists and freeing of their slaves. Many people today think Quakers never owned slaves. You know, Johns Hopkins University has just uncovered, (laughs) you know, the legacy there. Uh, But nevertheless, in Easton, the Quakers began by 1770 freeing the slaves from various Quaker meeting houses. And so the Hill community became a beneficiary of formerly enslaved persons Um, to the Quakers, and so they played a role. Um, And then you had individuals who were uh, able to hire themselves out, and this is where Jennifer Dorsey's book comes in in the title, Hirelings, and these hirelings, African uh, people of African descent and African Americans, who would hire themselves out uh, to purchase their freedom and or to purchase the freedom of other members. So it was an amazing sort of uh, uncovering of the different ways in which individuals who lived on the Hill community became free persons of color. And one family on the Hill community who who's, who bears that name, the Freemans, mm-hmm. and uh, James Freeman was the first to purchase first black to purchase a lot in the Hill community. And we refer to it as the Freeman lot. And he bought that lot in uh, 1787 and uh, raised his family. Uh, He had uh, eight children. And those Freemans are still members of the community to this day. 
In fact, one of the members of our The Hill Community Project team, Yvonne Freeman, is a descendant of James Freeman, who bought that lot in 1787. And in your research, have you been able to figure out if, for instance, James Freeman, uh, because oftentimes um, the slaves did not have a last name. Correct. Uh, so if he chose his last name uh, based on his freedom. That's what we believe. Oh, and that's why, yes, absolutely. That's why I referenced that because he, uh, you know, became a free person of color. And uh, it appears clear that he took up that name, as we see so many do. We, As we mentioned, Frederick Douglass took up the name Douglass as a free person. You know, Harriet Tubman took the name of John Tubman, who was a free person of mm-hmm. color. Uh, and so many blacks, you know, took up a new name and many of those names represented their freedom. In the case of my mother's side of the family, that is where the name Wayman, that last name Wayman comes from that. My cousin Odessa shared with us that uh, our family last name should have been, and we've seen it on the records, should have been Lightfoot because they were enslaved on the Lightfoot Plantation, and all of the names were Lightfoot. And one of our early relatives escaped from that plantation and made his way to Caroline County, Maryland, which is where the Waymans have all descended from on the Tuckahoe River, and he took up the name Wayman. And she said, based on, and this is oral history that's passed down, that he selected that name Wayman because he tried to run away on multiple occasions, as Frederick Douglass did, and he kept trying to run away, kept trying to run away, and other enslaved persons would discourage him and laugh at him and say, you're never going to run away, you're never going to get away. And he had this level of courage and tenacity And he would always say, I am going to run away. And when I get away, I'm going to be a wayman. Wow. And he took And I'm only sitting here because my mother's a wayman. (laughs) Her father was way and going all the way back to that. And he got to Caroline County and, uh, you know, set up a community and a family of the waymans. And Bishop Alexander Wayman uh, would be three generations removed from him. And that very Wayman, who we refer to as Old Charles Wayman, is buried on the Tuckahoe River just on the other side of where Frederick Douglass was born. And so these names were very important and they were very much tied to the level of freedom that the individuals were able to acquire. I want to say that's beautiful. It's not beautiful. It's a terrible story, but the way you tell it, it's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. One of the things that you're showing so well is the term that maybe our listeners have heard of before called griot, where the oral history of a descendant from Africa, West Africa, uh, that somebody in the family keeps this to themselves because it's 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 I don't know if we think about it or not but if you're not allowed to read and write <laughs> uh, then the oral history becomes that much more important and what you've told us I mean I, I can picture all of this stuff as you're talking of course I've, I've been to Easton many times so mm-hmm. you know it's wonderful to to think about all this but still could you talk about that griot Yes. Tradition, please. Absolutely. So the griot tradition is an African tradition uh, and comes largely out of uh, West Africa. And in the African tradition, and as many African proverbs record, and in fact, one African proverb says, when an elder dies, it is as if the library has burned to the ground. Wow. Because oral traditions in the African community in many ways trump publications and written history. Mm. And so there's a high emphasis on one's ability to uh, orally convey that history, which, as you can imagine, has pros and cons, (laughs) I would think, today and then, nevertheless. But... 
it was taken very seriously. And in fact, a griot, an actual title, an actual position, an actual calling. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about faith and religion today. Many would uh, argue that it was a, a level of an anointing that an individual might have uh, bestowed upon them to have the ability to be uh, an orator or even have the ability to have the memory. Because when I think about those before me, uh, who I know were the griots of our family, mm -hmm. uh, they certainly had um, an ability to retain a level of information uh, and that had been passed down from several generations and from centuries. Uh, and so the griot was one of the most important persons uh, in the overall community under, you know, the African tradition, you know, probably number two, like the number two person. Uh, and they were charged with uh, teaching not only the family, uh, but certainly the greater community about the history and the culture of, you know, the peoples, if you will. And in the case of uh, West Africa, you know, the Africans. But that is something that uh, transferred uh, through the enslavement of Africans in America because the griot was not relegated just to Africa. Um, you know, we sit here today and uh, many individuals have uh, made uh, certain comments of, about me in regards to that in our family of being a modern-day griot, if you will. Uh, but we, we see that um, the griot tradition continues uh, even in America through persons of African descent. There are several griot societies that actually exist. I know several uh, organizations and I know several individuals who are, in fact, uh, griots that are widely known. Uh, but in, within the individual African-American families, uh, I do think that there are individuals um, who are the griots of their respective families and some that are griots of the greater community, uh, such that they may be the keeper, if you will, of the African-American history of the community, or they're the griots um, of their family. In my case, the person that was closest to me uh, was my grandmother on my mother's side, who I know was uh, the griot of both her family's history along with her husband's family's history. And I always marveled at how my grandmother knew more about her husband's history than he did, and she knew all of the history about her family. And so it's important to understand that that griot might not just have the history of just their family, but they also have it of someone else's and that they carry that and they share it. Uh, but the Wayman family griot uh, recently uh, passed away. Uh, my cousin Odessa Wayman, uh, who would be a relative to Frederick Douglass as well, she was our family griot and she passed at 103 years old. Aww. And my grandparents saw to it very early on that they connected me to Cousin Odessa. And it's very interesting to know that I'd never met Cousin Odessa while she was alive. I met her at her graveside, being buried back where she was born on Maryland's Eastern Shore. But she had lived almost her whole life in Philadelphia, where I had never gone to visit her. Mm. But through the telephone, over many years, she shared with me history that goes back to, um, I would say, eight generations removed from me and, uh, and shared with me the individuals who shared that information Aww. with her. And even through the lens of the Hill Community Project, we have, because of the connections of the Wayman family with the project, we've substantiated these things because... My cousin Odessa, as I said, died, she died at 103 years old. She never used a computer. She never used the Internet. You know, so these aren't things that she could go and Google. Uh, she didn't use Google, you know, and she couldn't have really made these things up. But nevertheless, it's important to understand so that, you know, those that aren't as familiar with griots and oral histories and, you know, 
um, feel uncomfortable about how factual things may be. I love to be able to attest that the oral traditions and the oral history that uh, I have received and been told, we have been able to verify it through more than five different sources on many levels. And it is amazing to see that when she named certain people and we could go and find them in census records in places where she said they were connected to people that she said they were connected to people and all of these different things. And um, and she mentions that these are just the things that they told her in person. And these were people who were alive when Frederick Douglass was alive mm-hmm. and Harriet Tubman was mm-hmm. alive mm-hmm. and Bishop Wayman were alive. Mm-hmm. And they were people that we found records were in the household with them and things mm-hmm. like that. So, I mean, these are very important stories. These aren't stories that we should poo-poo on, as, as some do. Uh, you know, the role of the griot and uh, oral traditions in the African-American community oftentimes are the only records that we may have because there weren't any books published and they were not going to necessarily write down that history. In fact, Cousin Odessa never wrote anything down. She had all of this committed to memory and, and essentially lived her whole life, never married, never had any children. And she was a true keeper of the history. And it's just impressive when you really are able to, you know, meet individuals like that and connect it as you've asked a question like that. What's a griot? Who's a griot? How does that work? These are real people. And they take very seriously for 103 years. She committed her life to the Wayman legacy. And I mean, that's a, you know, very serious commitment and and, and passed that on, saw that, you know, I'm grateful that, you know, I've I've taken as much as I could, you know, from her uh, and through many capacities, I'm able to uh, use a lot of that information and share it in many ways and uh, connect it to things that might not be written. And so uh, it's a very important role. Dale, thank you so much that this has been so rich on so many different levels and to, for you for you to share your family history, uh, your love of the eastern shore of Easton. And uh, and then and then to underline the importance of families keeping records in yes. whatever way possible, keeping records of what came before them. Uh, it's it's just lovely. Yes. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by Talbot County, Maryland, the birthplace of Frederick Douglass. Visit frederickdouglasbirthplace.org to begin your journey into his life. Driving tours, history, and Douglas in his own words at frederickdouglasbirthplace.org.